This evening we're in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. We'll just be there tonight. We'll actually take two weeks to consider this commandment. God willing, next week we'll look at uh, the matter of taking oaths and vows and what that means scripturally and what that means for us as Christians when we put our hand on a Bible, so to speak, or we make a vow. How should we make vows? Should we make vows? And what does it mean to make a vow and not keep it if we make it in the name of God? Those might be concerns that you have. Maybe you've never thought of them. But I think this command deals with that question. And then also next week, we will look at the threat that this commandment carries as well with it. Just verse 7, I'll read it, and then we'll pray. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's pray. Father, your name is holy, and we are to regard you as holy. Lord, I pray that the words of our mouths and the conduct with which we live our lives out would be consistent with the name that we've called upon and the name that we have been called by. I pray that you'd be pleased, Lord, with the instruction that we receive from this text and that we would exalt your name and magnify your name and praise your name with our words and with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the first two commandments we've considered already, and they've taught us that there's no alternative to God at all, and therefore nothing of which he has made nor which we make is ever suitable for worship. We are never to worship anything that is created or that we have created in the place of God or even use them as a medium to worship the one true God with. God is to be worshipped, as Christ said, in spirit and in truth. We learn of him through the word, and his word is truth. And with the spirit, his spirit that dwells in us, we certainly now are able to worship him in the way that Christ prescribed. The Father desires that we worship him. But central to the first two commands is the absolute right and obligation of all of us to worship the one true living God and him alone. Realize that in the first two commands, and even in the first four, we split the commands sometimes into two tables, as I mentioned in our uh, pre-courses to this uh, topic. God is concerned for his singular rightful place as God. These commandments teach us of how God's own mind towards himself is. They teach us what his mind is towards himself. It is exactly because he alone knows no other God that he demands of his creatures to know no other gods but him alone. God says in Isaiah, I know of no other God. There is none beside me. I know not of any and this is why it's only for us to know him, the one true God. And therefore, when we think of the commands, the commands in the Ten Commandments are teaching us of what is first true of God. When we learn them, we are learning of ten streams, as it were, flowing from one source, one fountain. And they teach us of who God is, these commands. And what is the mind of God? The third command this evening deals with what, and I don't know Latin, I just know this phrase, 
But it deals with what this Latin phrase means, quorum Deo, which means before his face, before the face, meaning we live before the face of God. And that's what this command is dealing with. As we've been doing, we'll look at two aspects of it, what is forbidden and what is required in the command. First of all, what's forbidden in the command, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, we should define our terms. Perhaps that would help. Vain doesn't mean here what we think of as modern people, perhaps. That when you look in the mirror, you're a vain person. Narcissistic. That you're consumed with yourself. That's not what vain means here. What vain means is useless or without meaning or false even. That we take God's name without any sense of holiness, of sobriety to it. Without any carefulness. Without any concept of who he is that we are calling upon or naming. Thus it's false to take his name without serious consideration of who it is that we're speaking about. Or we take his name in a way that does not speak truly about him. We use false ideas to convey God. That would be a means of taking his name in vain. And that's what vain means, I think, in this context. And we'll look more to the particulars of that. But it also says, take the name. And I think when it says, take the name, that means we can speak about it in our speech and also in our, li- in our living how we bear the name of Christ or God. And next week, we'll look at how we bear the name of Christ or how we use the name of Christ in oath-making, in commitments, in covenants. Well, in the first place, we're asking the question, what is forbidden? In the first place, to speak God's name in vain is forbidden. In our speech, to commit blasphemy of God, to curse Him, to speak evil of Him, To accuse God of evil doing is forbidden in this commandment. Job 40, verse 2. God says to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Meaning, will you judge me? Will you, Job? Because Job is wondering. You know, he's got this trial that's come upon him. And he's committing himself as being righteous There's no reason why I should have had this come upon me. I know this is true. And Job speaks very profoundly about how he is righteous. And in so doing, he implies that what has come upon him is not just. God answers Job out 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 of a whirlwind. You who darkens counsel with words. Meaning Job didn't know of what he was speaking of when he was speaking about the ways of God. And one of the things God tells him is not to contend with the Almighty. When God acts, he acts perfectly. And it is not for us as creatures to find fault with him. To accuse God of doing evil is to call into question his character. And he is known in his character according to his name. Also, 
We ought not to presume to speak evil or to speak on his behalf when he has not spoken. To to take his authority upon ourselves, to judge in his place. This is what Job's friends did, right? His friends, so to speak. And God deals with one of his friends this way. Job 42, 7 and 8. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliaphaz, I don't know why he singles out only one of his friends. I don't know why. He singles out Eliphaz, the Temanite. My anger burns against you, God says, and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering to yourself, for yourselves, and my servant Joel shall, Job shall pray for you, for I will accept this prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. His prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now at that point in this narrative, Job has repented before God for speaking his words that he spoke. That's what he means by Job has spoken rightly. But the the friends have not spoken. They have not repented of speaking on the behalf of God, of making judgments on God's behalf without God having made those judgments. When we do that, we put ourselves in the place of God. We have to re- think about this. The, the question of what's in a name when it refers to God is everything. God has made himself known by his name. He is everlasting. He is a God who is capable and powerful and without any lack of comprehension or knowledge. He is perfect in judgment. When we call into question his name or when we speak on his behalf, we have taken it upon ourselves to speak in the place of God. And that's taking his name in vain. We ought not to speak flippancy about it, flippantly about God's name, to use God's name irreverently. Think about how often we do that. This week, twice, I heard somebody say, the man upstairs, you know, Just kind of, ah, shoot, you know, it's him up there. Speak that way about God. When I was growing up, I used to like to listen to Garth Brooks. This is Confession. It's good for the soul. And one of his songs is called Unanswered Prayer. And in that song, he says, remember when you're talking to the man upstairs. And and even when I was younger, I just thought, hmm, is that how we talk about God? uncreated, holy, robed and clothed in splendor, who dwells in unapproachable light. That's how we speak about him. So flippantly, without any concept of what is holy, what is sacred, even to question him irreverently. Now, I think there's an honesty in sincere questioning of God. But to question him irreverently, meaning to accuse him in our question, would be to consider him in an irreverent way. To use God's name, of course, as a curse word, as we so often hear in this culture. GD, OMG, all that stuff. You just throw God's word, God's name out there as a 
pronouncement of judgment or even using his name in a way that ascribes his dealings with man and have nothing in your mind towards him as being holy or being who he is. It's a grave sin to not consider that the speech means anything is not to hear James when he says a, a tongue is a whirlwind of iniquity. It's like a rudder. My friend used to say it like this. It's like a rudder. It can steer a ship. But James says that. He says it's a small member, but with your mouth, it could move your entire, your entire life can be moved by what you say. Scripture says, let no useless thing come out of your mouth. No vain speech. How much worse it is when we take God's name and we put no value on it. The other Last week, I did this. I did this, and I used Jesus' name. I can't remember the context because I'd heard it done in culture, and I just thought, oh, other people do that. Immediately as I did that, I knew that I had sinned against this command. Well, we sin against this commandment in the way that we speak, but also in the way that believers have called upon his name. Notice here that when we speak this way, this irreverent speech against God, this is contrary to having called upon his name. It's contrary to that. So we're capable of sinning when we speak in this way and breaking this commandment, but because of who we are, we are defined by the name of God. It makes it even a greater offense. You and I have called upon his name for salvation. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. So how can we who have called upon his name earnestly seeking salvation, use his name so irreverently. How much greater a crime. Within the context that God is speaking the Ten Commands, he's speaking to his people who he's brought out of Egypt. And it's especially for us who know this God and who know him savingly that we do not commit the error, the sin of taking his name in vain with our lips. We not only call upon his name, secondly, we are called by his name. Acts 15, 15 and 18 through 18. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, this is Paul. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruin. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. You and I have been called by God's name if we are in Christ. That means you and I bear his name upon ourselves. We demonstrate the holiness of his name in the world. We demonstrate the salvation that he's brought to us in the world. Therefore, it's not just how we speak the name of God that matters. 
It's how we live our lives as Christians that matters concerning this commandment. So secondly, what is forbidden is that we live this life of a Christian, this Christian life, in vain. In other words, we bear his name in vain as Christians in our lifestyle. And this is first of all done by living in hypocrisy, isn't it? Living as hypocrites. To say that we are Christians and then live a different way is to take God's name in vain. You're saying, you're calling yourself by what God has called his people, called them out of the world to be, according to his name, to resemble him, to declare his name in the world, to glorify him in the world. And when we live opposite that, we take his name in vain. Hypocrites can confess falsely that they are indeed gods. This is what the Jews were doing, isn't it? When Jesus came, he said, you call yourselves children of, Israel, of Abraham, but in fact, you are children of your father, the devil. You do his works. Because why, why did Jesus assume that? Why did he conclude that? Well, in one case, they set their own traditions above the word of God. They weren't known by God's holiness. They were known by their own standard of holiness. They took God's name in vain in that way. But also in the way they lived their lives out. Therefore, they, they put off the weightier matters of the law. And they were scrupulous, scrupulous about the smaller things, about weighing, weighing their mint and their cumin, but about mercy and justice and faithfulness, they gave those up altogether. And they were the hypocrites Jesus spoke of. Not only in confession may we be hypocritical and therefore take God's name in vain, but also in actions, of course. I mentioned it this morning, but in James 2, 14 through 19, we read, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, to say that we have faith in Christ is to say that we are called by his name. And if you say you have faith in Christ, then James says, he argues, just as Christ argues in Matthew 7, by the way, that those who have true faith will produce fruit. You will show fruit. You will work. Because faith works, Paul says in Galatians 5, through love. Notice what Paul says of the, rea the reaction of the world to the hypocrisy of those who would declare they are God's people. Romans 2, 23 and 24. You who boast in the law. Now, this is speaking of Jews here. Dishonor God by breaking the law, verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see what he's saying there? You guys claim to be God's people, and you break his law openly, and because of that, the name of God is blasphemed. Do you see the connection there? 
If you declare that you are one of God's, that you are Christ, that you belong to him, and you live contrary to his holiness, his truth, his word, the salvation that he's called you to, you are in essence taking his name in vain and giving cause for unbelievers to blaspheme God. And don't we know that's the case in Christian history? What do, what do non-believers love to point out about Christians? Well, look at all the evil the Christian church has done. The Inquisition, the Crusades, all of these things. They look back in history and they say, you're telling me that Christianity matters. Look at all this injustice. They point out where Christianity has moved away from the God that they profess to represent in this world. The God whose name they have been called by. It's the same idea that Paul is dealing with in Romans 2. Not only can we be hypocrites in action, but also in worship. Remember Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, 1 through 3? Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it. Now Aaron is the high priest and these are his sons. These are... These are valid priests right here. But they, off, they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. They offered up false worship to God, and therefore they took his name in vain. You say, well, that's, that's a crazy Old Testament example. We serve the God of the New Testament. But what about Ananias and Sapphira? These are confessing believers, professing believers in a time of unparalleled outpouring of the Holy Ghost. These are professing believers and the church had come together, and they had all things in common, the text says. And they were giving willingly. This isn't communism. These are people coming and willingly giving half of what they had. And there was no absolute, you have to give this much. They were just doing it. They were coming before one another, and they were giving just freely and radically out of love for one another. Acts 5. 1 through 11, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Meaning it wasn't necessary you did this. You came out of your own will to do this. But why, if you're doing it out of your own will, would you then lie? about what you're bringing, about what portion you're bringing. After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Even afterwards, you could have done rightly with it. Just don't lie. And he says this, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Now, just so we know that he just didn't die from some random activity, we conclude, we, can, we continue. The young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. 
After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. See, they were lying. They had agreed to lie in a matter of free will offering. They had designed to show, to, to, to appear like they were giving a certain amount. But secretly, they had held back. They were offering up false worship. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all of those that heard these things. You see what was happening? You know that with your giving, you are rendering unto God worship, right? False worship in the Old Testament led to the death of Nadab and Abihu as the, the people of God were being established in the land. And here we see as God's people in the New Testament were being established, this false worship is judged by God in a sober and most holy way. Why? Because all those who will draw nigh to God will know something, that he will be considered holy by them. He will be sanctified in their hearts. Now this is a massive idea. This means that when we worship, when we come to worship God, we have an opportunity to take his name in vain if our worship is not sincere towards him. To present ourselves as being fully engaged in worship of God while our hearts are far from him is indeed to take his name in vain in worship. So the most important difference, if you take these things, the most important difference of the third commandment to the first two is that while those restrict worship only to God alone, this is important, this commandment teaches us that even When we worship Yahweh alone, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, even when we are worshiping the true God, He is to be rightly esteemed both in our mouths and in our hearts and in our actions. So in other words, we can worship the true God. We can have only the true God before us. But if we take His name in vain, we are not offering unto Him True worship, proper worship. Well, what is the positive aspects of the command? Quickly here. First of all, we ought to use careful and reverent speech of God. We ought to magnify God's name instead of tearing it down. Magnify is to make God look big. We can't make him look any bigger than he is. You realize that? There's nothing we can say that makes him look bigger, but we can magnify him. We can magnify his holiness to the ears of people, to the hearers. Psalm 34.3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Lift it high. See him in his transcendent glory when we speak of his name. We ought to bless the Lord. Psalm 103, 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. 
As his people, we ought to speak soberly. That means thoughtfully, with our full intent of our intellect, and honestly about God. Therefore, to use God's name reverently, he is the Holy One of Israel, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the Mighty God. He is not your next door neighbor, even though he loves you much more. The word of God reflects his name and his name speaks of who he is. Do you feel pressure? Sometimes I feel this pressure not to speak reverently of God. Do you feel, sometimes I feel like we're in such a culture of casualism. We're just so casual that to speak anything of holiness seems incongruent. How will people take it if I speak of God as in a holy and reverent manner? But I think in a church, in a congregation where God is worshipped, we ought to be willingly and readily engage our minds to the holiness of God, whereby when somebody speaks of God in exalting tones and fashions and even trembles when they speak of him, we should get it. <laughs> we should get that he is. When, we thinking, when we're thinking rightfully about him, he is to be most soberly considered in our minds, most reverently admonished in our lips when, our, when we speak. So be careful then also to speak only God's word, right? Do not substitute his word for your ideas and your judgments with his judgments. We also ought to point others to him with our words, shouldn't we? We've been given a great commission to go into all the world and to make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles were admonished, do not teach in this man's name, in the name of Jesus. They were taught, told by the high priest, Sanhedrin, made a judgment, you are not to teach in Jesus' name. And Peter answered, we must obey God rather than men. They threw him in prison, or in fact, actually, they were going to beat him, and Gamaliel stepped in, and they were actually going to kill them. And then this is the result, Acts 5, 40 through 42. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Whose name? For Jesus' name, the name that they were charged not to speak. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, is Jesus. You know, we don't hear stories like that anymore. If somebody loses their business as a Christian baker for even standing against a moral issue, that's not the same as evangelizing Christ. But we look at that as just a cultural issue. We don't look at evangelism as a necessary means of exalting Christ anymore. 
We're ashamed as a culture, as a culture of Christianity, to say to our neighbors and say to our friends, Christ is the only way to God. You must repent of your sins and believe on Christ, but if you do, you will be saved. That is to exalt the name of Christ. This culture would have us believe that our faith is only for ourselves, but God, through Christ, gave us a commission. To go into all the world and to preach the gospel. So that's what we do with our speech. We also ought to live a Christ-exalted life. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer the I that live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that your testimony? If so, you live according to the name of Christ, by the name of Christ. Paul also said to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12, To this end we ought always to pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. What's he saying? He's saying we are praying for you that your life aligns with the name of Christ which you have been called by. And you and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do this? Would you consider praying that prayer for one another in this church? 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. To this end we ought always to pray, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. That's a prayer coming from the apostle that we can take and we can pray that for each other. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in us here. But notice that it aligns with his work of grace in our lives, in the way that we live out our lives. The third command is rooted in reverence to a holy God, one who deserves and desires to be honored among, above his creation. And without a doubt, everyone in this room has at one time or another offended this command of God, right? And so therefore we praise God for his mercy in giving us his son who died for our sins, even of irreverence, blasphemy, perjury, and flippancy. Remember that he died to free us to rejoice also in his name. He died so that we would live unto Christ and that we would die to that old blaspheming nature, that old irreverent nature, irreverent nature. The old man who did not want to praise God, but wanted to curse God. Who did not want to bow before God's judgment, but wanted to judge in God's place. He's replaced that. So that we can live coram Deo before the face of God in reverence for his name. In our speech, in our words, in our worship. So that we may glorify Christ, knowing this, that God has highly exalted him. 
and given him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The truth is, is that we will either be confessing Jesus' name now and have in store for us eternal life with him, or we will be confessing his name when he is our judge in eternity. Everyone will at one day know and confess that Jesus is Lord. My hope for this prayer, this church, and my prayer as I look out at this few people here is that everyone in this church would name the name of Christ as Lord and would walk circumspectly with this command that we not take his name in vain.